So this is only a three week class, three week session, but you'll notice the book feels like more than three weeks worth of material. It is. We're not gonna go through all of it. It's actually designed for us to get through parts of it. And I'm just going to offer to you the opportunity to study other parts on your own. Thank you. um, <clears throat> you're welcome, you're welcome. So homework, homework. Uh, when Matt and I were in negotiations about me coming and being on staff here, one of the things I asked him, I said, can I just, can I just be myself? I know that sounds like a weird question, but I go, if I come, I just wanna be able to be myself. And he goes, yeah, I think so. So I wore shorts for 15 straight years every single day, even if it was negative 20 degrees. So if it's over 70 degrees, Pastor Mike is usually gonna have shorts on. Okay, so that's just me being me. Uh, so just so you know. Um, <clears throat> I don't wanna freak anybody out. Um, so. <laughs> I quit. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> Not an on-camera conversation. Uh, so even though the book that you're holding is like over 60 pages, it does not even begin to do justice to the topic that we're going to cover. So we're going to be talking about the attributes and characteristics of who God is and how he's revealed himself to us in his word, through his son, and even in nature. And to do justice to that, this book and what we put together doesn't even come close. Uh, I, so we're going to talk about how important this is. So I just brought some other good books. If you want to do some reading on your own, in addition to the Greg Allison book, uh, here are some examples you can look at. Some are moderate in size. Some are more than moderate at the bottom. <clears throat> but these would all be excellent books. Excellent books on just the character and attributes of God. If you just want to go a little bit deeper on this subject on your own at any point. So you can take pictures of them. You can look at them. You can't take them, but uh, you can look at them. All right. So I just want you to know what's out there and what I would encourage you to consider and to check out. Um, let's pray and let's jump into it together. Father, we come before you with a desire to get to know you more. May you just spur our hearts and our minds to seek your face. Uh, my desire is that by teaching this, that we all increase our value of you, we all fall, fall more in love with you, and we seek all the more to tell others about how awesome, beautiful, and amazing you truly are. So God, impact us, change us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. So when it comes to this, just this subject of the attributes of God, the character of God, getting to know God, when I was a freshman in college, at some point I read Jeremiah 29, 13, or I think I even heard somebody just say it out loud. And the verse says, if you, when you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. When you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now, as I learned more about how to interpret scripture, that promise was to a specific group of people at a specific time. But it shows us in God's character and in God's design, he honors people when they seek his face. And when it comes to the level at which we're supposed to be engaged in that pursuit, the level is all of our heart. <clears throat> so even for me, when I was in college, one of the things I wanted to go after is I wanted to, I wanted to see him. He said, if, if you seek me with all your heart, you're gonna find me. So even for me, with bad interpretation, I'm like, whatever it takes, I'm gonna go for it. So I would read books like that, I would study. Um, <clears throat> and it was some of those fruitful years of my life. And for me and for you, you're gonna have times when you, when you go after it and you have times when the desire is not quite as strong. But what I want the Lord to do in our time together 
is to just spur us on to encourage us to seek his face with more of our heart than what we're doing presently. So that's my hope, that's my purpose, that's my desire for taking the time to go through this together. So page three, let's go through some of the introduction thoughts. It starts with this, the more you know God, the more you will fall in love with him, for he is the most awesome, desirable, and beautiful that there is. So the more that you get to see him, the more you're going to love looking at him. The more you get to spend time with him, the more you'll want to spend time with him. The more you get to know him, the more you're just going to fall in love with him. So <clears throat> in the middle there, in the bold, it says the value of studying God is found in the value of God himself. The value of studying God is found in the value of God himself. If you knew in your backyard that there was a gigantic diamond buried one foot under the dirt, you would dig up your entire backyard until you found it because you would recognize how valuable it was and you would go for it and you would dig and dig until your back hurt and your hands bled. I'm telling you, God is more precious than that diamond. So the question is, what does your pursuit of God look like? What does my pursuit of God look like? Does it reflect the value of God? If it does, it means we're going after it. We're pursuing, okay? We're calling others to go with us in this journey of getting to know him more. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a catechism is just a series of questions and a series of answers to try to really, in the most simple way possible, define what it means when we talk about theology. It says this, who is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So it's a single sentence, but if I double clicked on those words, and then I spent time studying each one of those words, we could write a thousand page book on each one of those words. So it's simple and concise, but it's profound at the same time. Okay, so that's just one short definition. A.W. Tozer wrote a book, which I forgot to bring, called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's only like 120 pages, and it is wonderfully written. It will challenge you, it will push you. I had the guys do it in the men's studies. I got lots of complaints because it's not super easy to read, but honestly, I read that when I was younger. I just remember it just setting me in the right direction, kind of set my heart on fire to go for it. Um, one of the things he says right on page one is what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think of that statement? Do you think it's true? Do you think it's kind of true? Do you think it's not true? What's your response to reading that? The most important thing about you. I think for me, it's always awe. I'm just in awe hmm. of any time I'm in his presence. I know you're always in God's sight. I don't believe that we always stay in God's presence. I think there are times that we're in his presence so much more hmm. than other times. Good. That's where I like to be. I like to be in his presence, That's good. not in his sight. Okay, okay. Other thoughts? Is the most important thing about you the first thoughts you have of God? Jesus, our salvation. Okay, so that's pretty important, right? Good. Yes, sir? Someone that said, well said, to rightly fear the Lord, you need to fear nothing else. Hmm. To fear the Lord, you need to fear nothing else. That's good. That's good, Dan. 
So <clears throat> when the clouds roll in, when the winds start to blow, when the water starts to rise, and the storms are about to hit you square in the face, which happens, right? Every single one of you have gone through hard things. And if you haven't, you're probably about to, because that's just the way life is. Jesus tells us it's gonna be hard. Okay, so hard things have come and they will continue to come. Your understanding and knowledge of God will dictate how you handle your next storm. So it's really important how well you know him, because when the hard things happen, when the doubts come in, when people question you, push you, when relationships fall apart, when diagnoses don't go your way, that's the moment when your faith, when your knowledge of God, okay, it's, it's when the rubber meets the road. If you're not sure if God's really there for you, your time of suffering will be very difficult. If you're not sure that God loves you, even when you mess up, the next time you sin, it'll be hard for you to go into his presence. Okay? If you're not sure that he enjoys being around you, when you experience loneliness, you will experience it at a very profound, deep level. Because you're not sure if he really wants to be around you or hang out with you. If you view God as having a smiling face and open arms, your response to God is very different than if you view him as having a frowning face and a wagging finger. Okay, I saw something, I think it was on Instagram. <clears throat> it's talking about your relationship with the Lord. And it says, when I sin or when I mess up, religion says, I better not tell dad. Relationship says, I messed up. I better call dad. Referring to our relationship with the Lord. So understanding what he's like, when I mess up, I run to him. So my first thoughts of God determine my actions, my responses, to my sin, to my life, to my suffering, to my relationships. So I would suggest to you that this statement is really true. The way you understand God, the level at which you know him and believe what the Bible says about him will determine your thoughts, your feelings, your motivations, everything about you and how you respond to the world in front of you. So I think it's of huge importance. Uh, Tozer, a little bit farther in his book, or actually in the introduction of the same book, uh, has this statement. Tozer's a bit of a prophet, and his tendency is to poke, okay? You know what I mean when I say poke? Like, try a little harder, do a little more. So this sentence is a poke. Here it comes. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and conscious presence of consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet with God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words be still and know that I am God mean nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. Tozer wrote that to people in the 60s and 70s. Do you think that statement is still kind of true today? Everyone's nodding? Yeah, the bustling worshiper. What a good picture that is. I mean, how often am I just pulling my phone out all the time? I mean, when I have a moment of silence, do I draw inward to talk to the Lord and to meet with him? Or do I check to see who texted me or if someone Facebooked me or Instagram? I mean, the world is calling us outside of ourselves to be giving attention to what they're trying to sell, what they're trying to push, what service they're trying to provide, always. God's calling us inward to meet with him deeply, okay, through his word, through times of prayer. So I think as much as ever, we are bustling worshipers 
who have a tendency to be drawn outward rather than to be drawn inward to really meet deeply with the Lord. Uh, the bottom there, there's a quote from Gerald Bray, and it says this, the heart of all theology is nothing less than to know God and to make him known. So if I took all my shelves of theology books and put them all here on the front of this podium or on a table, at the end of the day, the only purpose for reading those, the only purpose for why they were written is this, is that we would know God more. And the result of knowing God more is we fall more in love with him and there's this tendency within us to share about the fact that we love them. So if you buy a dishwasher and it gets your dishes squeaky clean, you probably tell 10 people about that, right? Jesus comes into your life, radically changes everything. It is natural and it is normal to then share with other people what he's done for you, even more so than that amazing dishwasher you just purchased, okay? So our tendency when we truly know him is to talk a little bit about him and talk a little more about him. So that's our response to, to this study, to theology, to spending time even in God's Word. J.I. Packer. So he wrote a book called Knowing God. I have it right here. I just want to know, how many of you have read this book? Okay, four of you. All right, good. So this is a book, and there's only been two other people all day that have read this book. So, and one was Matt Friend, so he's, he was, he's probably supposed to read this book. Um, this is just an absolute classic. When I've suggested books that have more than 10 pages per chapter, I get a lot of moaning and groaning. This is about 13 or 14 pages per chapter. So as we as a church begin to get to the point where we can read more than 10 pages per chapter, I'm going to encourage this book. I think this is one of the best ones ever written. You will love this book. It's a classic. The church has been changed by it for decades. <clears throat> J.F. Packer says this in that book, our aim in studying the Godhead, Godhead is another way of saying the Trinity, okay? Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance with God, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. As he is subject to our study and our helper in it, so he must be himself the end of it. We must seek in studying God, to be led to God. It was for this purpose that the revelation was given, and it is to this use that we must put it. Okay? So as we study God, it's not an academic endeavor. It's a relational opportunity. It's not an academic endeavor. It's more than that. And I think there's this tendency sometimes to think we study the Bible, or we study theology, or we come to classes so that we learn about God so that we can achieve something else. I want to rearrange that thought process for us. God is the end, okay? This is a means, but God is the end. There's nothing better than Him. We study all these books and we read His Word so that we know Him better, okay? All the blessings, everything you desire in life is found there. He is the end to all of this, okay? This is the means, He is the end. We don't learn about him so we get something else. There's nothing behind that back door. It's him. Does that make sense? He's the end. He's the, the final purpose, the reason for our pursuit. Uh, Packer goes on and he talks about four things that are true of people who know God. I think these are really good statements. Those who know God have great energy for God. Have you met people like that? 
it just you can just tell like they're spending time with God they get excited about it and there's just an energy that they have for God and for doing things for God and talking about God number two says those who know God have great thoughts of God those who know God show great boldness for God as you get to know God more your fear of man begins to decrease as you know him more you're less afraid of what people think of you it doesn't mean you become annoying or brash you don't become that guy on the simpsons that ned flanders guy that everybody can't stand you don't become that christian but you're just not afraid of talking openly about how much you love jesus and how his presence in your life changes everything about who you are because you're not you're no longer afraid of what people think because you have great thoughts of god you know god the fourth one says those who know god have great contentment in god because if you know god when that storm starts to roll in when the suffering comes what happens is you are aware and you know that he has got you by the hand he's holding on to you and he will not let go all right so when you know that about him that gives you the ability to have contentment regardless of your circumstance regardless of your situation okay let's go to jeremiah chapter 9 Do you need a book? Shree, would you have him, Alex, a book? Cool. All right, so chapter 9, <clears throat> verses 23 and 24, I'll read them. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. All those other things, there's no reason to boast in possessions. There's no reason to boast in success or achievement. Those things make no sense. If you are going to boast, there's one thing to boast about, that you're growing in your knowledge of God. You're growing in your understanding of who he is. And then he continues. He says that, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth for I delight in these things declares the Lord so what are we to, to boast about him knowing him growing in him growing in our love for him and our understanding of him there's nothing else on the planet worth boasting about or getting excited about that's the thing that matters he is the end he is the purpose he is the end goal okay but that's hard isn't it because the world is celebrating everything else. The world is celebrating everything else. When you get that home in the little nicer neighborhood, your friends go, good job. When you drive that car that's a little bit nicer than the car you drove before, people pat you on the back. When you move up in your place of employment to a higher position, people say congratulations. Here's a leadership principle. Typically, what you celebrate is what you become. What you celebrate is what you become. So, if we as a church, if you and your groups of friends celebrate when you spend more time with the Lord, that's something you will then do more. If your church celebrates people coming to core classes and getting in God's Word and studying together, that's what we will start to become more. What you celebrate tends to become your, your value, and your value becomes your culture, your culture becomes who you are. Free leadership principle. So, uh, so we want to celebrate this. 
Here's something that I think is interesting. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but this is going to lead up to something else we're going to talk about. God mentions three of his attributes there. His loving kindness, his justice, and his righteousness. And he says he delights in all of those things. Are there any attributes... How do I phrase this? Um, are there particular attributes that you tend to like more than other attributes? Mm-hmm. Attributes of God, yeah. Do you have favorites? He says he delights in all three of those. Do you delight in justice as much as loving kindness? No. Oftentimes we don't. We, don't we like the loving kindness, right? Uh, and that's pretty typical. Well, that depends who it's for. <laughs> that's a good point, Blair. That's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good point. <clears throat> So for us, we do have a tendency to be drawn to certain attributes of God's and characteristics of God and not to others. But from the Lord's point of view, he, the only one who truly knows himself, sees the beauty and the purpose and the relationship between the different characteristics and attributes of who he is. Loving kindness doesn't mean much without, like mercy doesn't mean much without justice, right? You take justice away, mercy disappears. Without wrath, grace doesn't mean much. If you take wrath away, then grace has very, has, doesn't have as much meaning. So, <clears throat> in God's perfectly balanced self, every attribute is equally as beautiful. Every attribute equally brings him glory, and he delights in each one of them. Now, in you and I, within our personalities, we have conflicting things inside of us. God doesn't conflict, doesn't have doesn't have the, this tension within himself. So last night, uh, Luke went to bed, my son, and he didn't empty the dishwasher. We tell him every night before you go to bed, please empty the dishwasher. Because if you don't empty the dishwasher, then the dishes get backed up, and then the kitchen falls apart. It's the first step for the whole kitchen running the way it's supposed to run, right? Probably the same in your house. So Luke went to bed, and I and as I was going to bed, I saw that the dishwasher wasn't done. So at that moment, I had some conflict. Do I just give him some grace? He's 14. He probably has other things on his mind other than the dishes, if you can believe that. Uh, and, and he's tired. So do I let him sleep or do I go up there, grab his butt, pull it out of bed, bring him down and make him do the dishwasher? Okay, just so you know, I let him sleep. And, but when I got home this afternoon, it still wasn't done. So tonight when I get home, we will have a conversation if I need to have a conversation. Um, <clears throat> but for me, there was conflict there. Does that make sense? There was conflict. There was the desire for justice and the desire to give grace and mercy and love. So there was conflict. I didn't know which one to do. God never has that conflict. He's always at peace with himself. He's always 100% merciful and he's 100% just. Okay? He's not like a pie graph where certain parts of him are brass, certain parts are mercy. He's... 100% of all that he is. So there's a simplicity to God, there's a unity to God, and God always acts fully, completely as himself in his entirety. All right? That wasn't in there. I don't know if you wrote that down or not, but that's true of God, okay? Divine revelation. So God is a personal being. All right, you are personal beings. If I want to get to know you better, that means I probably need to grab you and take you to lunch. 
I need to ask you some questions about yourself. I need to get to know you a little bit better. You need to ask me questions to get to know me better. And if we go to lunch five times, we'll know each other a lot better than we know each other now. But we really won't even be getting into the deep stuff after five times. Like we can go to lunch 25 times and we're just really starting to get to know each other. We can go to lunch together once a week for the rest of our lives and still not fully know one another. And we're only finite beings. So I need to reveal myself to you. I need you to pursue me so that I can answer your questions so you can get to know me. And I need to pursue you and you need to answer my questions so I get to know you better. It's similar with the Lord. The Lord is a personal being. He is revealing himself to us through his word, through his son, and even through nature to some extent. Okay? But we have to go after it. We have to get to know him better. So here's two aspects of how God's revealed himself. So God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself truly. Okay, he's revealed himself truly, but not fully. Why has he not revealed himself fully? We could not handle that. Yep, he's infinite. There is no book that the planet could hold that would fully exhaustively communicate to us everything about the Lord. But when he has spoken about what he's like, he's spoken about himself truly, okay, truly. So when he says that he is this or he is that, that is really true. Even if you don't fully comprehend it or you don't fully understand it, it is nevertheless true. So when God says that he is love, that's true. You will not fully and completely understand that but it is nevertheless completely and utterly true. So, if God has truly revealed himself and he is the most valuable being in the entire universe, how should we respond to that truth? What do you think? Is that a hard question? If he's truly revealed himself, how should we respond to that? Embrace it, pursue it, go after it. Like that diamond in your backyard we talked about, start digging. If your hands start to bleed, keep digging. Okay, so that's the response. If he's truly presented who he is to us, we go after it because there's no, there's no pursuit that is more valuable than the pursuit of God himself. Okay, so we go after it. But nevertheless, it's not fully, he hasn't fully or exhaustively or completely revealed himself to us. So, like we said, God's word communicates to us and reveals to us what he's like. Because it can't be exhausted, it means that this takes place progressively. And it takes place over time. Okay? Progressively and over time. So, if I open up my Bible and I look at Exodus... And I see how well the people in Exodus who knew God, if I, knew, if I could see how well they knew God, it wouldn't be nearly as well as the people during the time of Isaiah. It wouldn't be nearly as well as the people during the time of Luke. It wouldn't be nearly as well as you sitting here today. So over time, God has progressively, progressively revealed more and more and more about who he is. For thousands of years, He's been slowly rolling out his character and his attributes through 
his redemptive plan through Jesus and through all this happened in the world through his word to communicate more and more fully who he is. But because he's infinite, he can't give it to you all at once. It's like that, that idea of taking your face, putting it in front of a fire hydrant, and just opening that thing up. I mean, you've got no shot. I mean, you're going to drown. If God were to do that, you would drown in who he is. So God's dripping it, little pores, little drips, over time to get to know him better. That's how he's revealed himself. Bottom of page five. <clears throat> The purpose of God's revelation. So there's a purpose in this. Why did he reveal himself? For a reason. To bring glory to himself. So before beginning a discussion on God's attributes, we should stop and reflect on God's purpose, God's motivation. He is glorious, and he desires, seeks, and expects to be glorified by all that he has made. He says that in Isaiah 48.11. Isaiah 48.11 says this, For my own sake... For my own sake, I will act. So for your sake? For my sake? No, no, no. It says for his sake. For his sake, he will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. My glory, I will not give to another. I mean, that sounds a little self-centered, doesn't it? What, what was the number one commandment that he gave to Moses? The Ten Commandments, what was number one? Thou shalt not Thou shalt not put any other gods before me. So if God were to take his glory and say, You have more worth than I do, he's breaking his own first commandment, isn't he? And knowing that God is the only infinite being in the universe, for him to say, You have more worth than I do, would be a lie. So for God to just give his his glory to another is not true. Okay? So by nature of who God is, God is the one who deserves the glory. His glory is for our good. His glory is for our good. When he makes known that he is the most valuable, the most worthy being in the universe, that's good for us. Because then we jump in with what's truly true and we enjoy him. We find satisfaction in him. We as dependent beings go to the only being who's independent and draw life and substance and everything we need comes from him. Okay, so let's talk about aspects of God's glorious nature. So when we say that God is glorious, the first aspect is the fact that he is internally glorious. What I mean by that is the weight and reality of God's infinite worth and value resides in just simply who he is. God doesn't have to go out and work at being glorious. He just is glorious. He doesn't have to perform something or prove to you or to prove to me that he's glorious. He simply is glorious. His infinite weight, his infinite worth, his infinite value is just innately true about who he is always at all times. But there's also an external component to God's glorious nature. He's so glorious that it like shines out of him. We talk about God being full of splendor. We talk about <clears throat> the fact that God basically puts out light. The Bible says that in heaven, there's not going to be a sun. The glory of God will basically light up the whole place. His splendor, his worth just radiates out of him. <clears throat> When Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, it says that his face is like the sun. 
Remember what happened when Moses hung out with the Lord on Mount Sinai? His face started to glow. They actually had him wear a veil because he was freaking people out. So God's glory shines forth to the point where if you're in that glory, you're changed to be more like him. Okay, that's what Moses experienced. In the transfiguration, there was light. Like, that is part of God's glorious nature. But here's what's interesting. In God's glorious nature, when he creates something, when he makes something, there's a reflective aspect to it. So the Bible says that you were made in his image. And because you were made in his image, you, on some level, reflect God's glory to other people. Like, as I get to know one of you and I see your love for people, I see you serving people, that allows me to get a little picture of what it looks like when God loves people, when God serves people. Not perfectly, okay, but I get a glimpse of it. When I look up at the skies, the Bible tells me in Psalm 19 that the skies pour forth speech. They proclaim every moment of every day, God is glorious, He is magnificent, He is wonderful. Look and be amazed at the one who created me. That's what the sky pours forth and says. So even his creation, the mountains, the oceans, they talk about the beauty, they proclaim, they reflect aspects of God's char character. Therefore, they reflect God's glory. Okay? So all those things are true. God's purpose for creation. So his purpose for revealing himself is his glory. God's purpose for creation is his glory, okay? His purpose for all those things are his glory. So I think we've talked about this in other classes, but in the Garden of Eden, you see Adam and Eve hanging out with God. They go for walks, right? They go for walks. In heaven, you see people going before the throne of God, taking their crowns, throwing them on the ground, going face first before God, proclaiming, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is He. Why do the people in heaven respond in a different manner than just saying, hey God, let's go for a walk, like Adam and Eve did? Why, why, why is there a different response? What do you think? They can, they can see Him better. And what have they experienced that Adam and Eve had not experienced at that point in the Garden of Eden? Salvation. 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 They didn't know much of mercy. They didn't know much of grace. They didn't know much of justice. They didn't know much of wrath. You and I, who have seen our sin, have hated our sin, who have run to Jesus and said, forgive me for all the garbage and rebellion that I've done against you, and then received his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and then got adopted to be his children and they were being transformed by his mercy and his grace every single day. That's a radically different experience. God did not cause the fall, but God did permit the fall. And in permitting the fall, it allowed this redemptive plan to take place where he got to display all these aspects of his character and his attributes through Jesus, through his working with his people and the dealings he does with his people. So in heaven, we know much, much more about God than what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, even though there's no sin in either place. Okay? So why did God create the world? Why did he allow the fall to happen? To bring him glory. And he's done a very good job at doing that. Okay? He's done a very good job at doing that. Any quick questions about that? 
we'll save time for questions at the very end too. Um, but, but that's key to know. So why do bad things happen? The simple answer, and I wouldn't encourage you to use this answer, but ultimately, God gives himself glory through hardships and trials and sufferings because there are opportunities to lean on him. There are opportunities to grab a hold of him. There are opportunities to run to the one who can provide for you when you can't provide for yourself. All those things provide God with opportunities to make himself known, which brings him glory. All right, so how does glory function within the Trinity? So we talked about this for a second. We said that um, we said that it's kind of hard when you have creation, and God says everything in creation is to bring me glory. There's it feels a little self-centered. We know that it's not. We know that it's right. That God is the only one who's worthy of glory. But something inside of us still struggles with that at times. Part of that is because we forget the fact that God is three persons. So we have the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what the Bible says when it comes to, the, comes to glory is this. In this quote here from Frame, talking about the circle of glorification, it says this. The circle of glorification, however, does not begin with creation. There is also a circle of glorification within the Trinity itself. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son and therefore glorifies the Father through the Son. Each member of the Trinity speaks and acts in such a way as to enhance the reputation of the other two, to bring praise and honor to the other persons. So even when, when God says, give me your praise, give me your glory, when we throw it his direction, when we give him, when we give him attention and we say, you are worthy, the Father's, the Father directs attention to the Son. The Son directs attention. I mean, there's this circle of glorification. And you see it throughout Scripture. Like, if we had time to look up all those passages, over and over again, the Son is so excited about bringing glory to the Father. The Father is so excited about bringing glory to the Son. So, within His triune nature, there's this circle of glorification. They love giving glory, giving attention to one another, making much of one another. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Okay? So when we talk about God desiring glory, this is what it actually looks like within the Trinity. All right? Let's go to page seven. So when it comes to how do we give God glory, here's a couple R's that might make this easier to remember, but here are some ways that we give God glory. This is how we're involved in helping bring glory to the Son, to the Father, to the Holy Spirit. One, we reflect Him. We talked about that already. Because you were made in His image, by nature, you reflect characteristics and attributes of God. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that we're being transformed to be more and more like Him, which gives Him more and more glory. We also recognize. When I say by recognizing, it means that we realize the fact that we are finite, there is nothing that you ultimately can provide for yourself. Even the next breath you take is a gift from God. So by recognizing that we have nothing and He has everything, that gives glory to Him. It's saying, I'm in need and you're the giver of good gifts. So by just recognizing who we are and who He is, that brings Him much glory. 
by receiving. So when we go in there with open hands, having nothing to give, when He gives us grace, when He gives us forgiveness, when He gives us mercy, and we just say, thank you, thank you, that gives God glory. Just receiving gives Him glory. Then by responding, as we're given things, we praise, we adore Him, we love Him, we love others, we serve, uh, we live life in unity with God's family, we become delighted in who He is, we're satisfied in what He gives. All those things, all those responses bring glory to God. And finally, by reporting, and we talked about this earlier as well, when we receive much from God, there's this tendency, there should be this tendency within us to then tell others about it. We get excited about it. It changes us, so it changes the way we view the world and it changes the way we interact with the world. He show us, shows us love. It's our tendency to then demonstrate that love, to communicate that love to others. The last point there says, we enhance his reputation in everything we do and say. Do you remember what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says? This is a good one to memorize. What does it say? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or walk out to your car or go to Walmart or give your kid a hug or give your grandchild a hug or have a conversation with your spouse, no matter what you do, no matter what it is, do it for the glory of the Lord. So what this tells us is that in the minutia of your day, in the mundane things that you do every day, you can give glory to God. Everything you do, every action, every thought, every word, can bring glory to God if your heart is positioned in a way where you're saying, this is for you. This is for you. I want to do this with thanksgiving for you. If our heart is positioned that way, when you go home and eat broccoli tonight, eat broccoli for the glory of the Lord, okay? Or, or brownies, whatever it is you're going to eat. Um, but So we can glorify God in the mundane. What a beautiful thing. In the little things, God's given us the ability to bring Him glory. At the bottom. So even though God can be truly known, though not exhaustively known, there are those who deny this. Here are some ways that it's denied. One is atheism, which most of you probably know what that is. It just, it's the proclamation that there is no God. Agnosticism says... Maybe there's a God. Maybe there's not a God. I don't know. I'll let you know later. So agnosticism just doesn't declare one way or the other. They question the reality of God. Gnosticism basically says there's a secret way to knowing God. There's a secret way to knowing God. Gnosticism claims that there's this, this gnosis, which is this secret, this secret knowledge that some get and others don't get. And by having possession of it, those are the people that get to know God. So they deny that through God's word you get to know him. They deny that through his son you get to know him. It's through this secret knowledge, this secret pathway you get to know him. Uh, we, of course, would deny that and say that's wrong. Experientialism says that you get to know God through your experiences, through your emotions. It doesn't matter what you know. What matters is what you feel and what you experience and your responses to those experiences. And we would say that would also be lacking I hope you experience God, but you also need to know God. Your mind is engaged. Your heart is also engaged. Both are engaged. So we would deny all four of those things. All right, so page, page eight. 
So one of the things we have to figure out is how do we start talking about God? Um, there's kind of two categories. When we talk about his characteristics or his attributes, there's kind of two columns or two categories. I kind of work those out for you. Um, I would kind of summarize them this way. There is, uh, there's the transcendent category. And what, what do I mean when I say transcendent? Do you remember? Good. So he's above and beyond his creation. He created time. He created space. Okay. He created matter. And God lives outside of those things. He didn't create those things and then was bound by those things. Like if you made a cardboard box, you're not stuck in the cardboard box you made. You can look down at your cardboard box. You can stick your hand in it. You can climb in it, but you're not bound by it. God is not bound by his creation. He lives outside of it. And under that category, and he's, he's transcendent by nature. He doesn't need to do anything to be above and beyond his creation. He just is above and beyond his creation. By nature, he is. And there's aspects of him, therefore, that are just not like us. That's the simplest way of saying it. There's realities and aspects of God that just is not like us. Some words that describe that would be the word incommunicable. Okay? attributes of his greatness, like he's omnipresent, right? It means he's everywhere always. You're right here right now. You're not everywhere always. You're just right here. You're not over there. You're just right there, okay? But God, and you don't know what it feels like to be here and there at the same time. God experiences that all the time. Always. So there's aspects of God that are just different than you. He knows all things. And he knows how all things work together. And he has the wisdom to make choices. That's not like you either. It's not like me. So there's aspects of who God is that's just different than us. There's another category that can kind of be summarized by the fact that God is imminent. So like I described the cardboard box, you, if you created a cardboard box, you're not bound by the cardboard box. You live outside of it, but you can choose to climb into your cardboard box. God has chosen. He doesn't have to. He has chosen because he loves us and he's merciful and he's gracious and he's so kind, he has chosen to dwell and live within his creation. So he resides outside of it and inside of it, one by nature, one by choice. And in his living in time, and him living based on matter, based upon space, there's things about him that are similar to us. So these would be characteristics that are similar. Okay, is that I-A-R? It's always hard to spell up front. Um, so there's aspects about him that are similar to us. These would be considered communicable, okay? Communicable. So God is loving. You're not as loving as God is, but you know about love. God is patient, okay? About 7.45 tonight, we'll find out if I'm patient when I go home and see if the dishwasher is emptied or not, okay? So God is fully patient, 100% patient, 100% just, I'm sometimes just, I'm sometimes patient. So we are similar, but not identical. Does that make sense? So in this category here, there's things that, are, that we can relate to and we can experience on some level, even though God is the perfect form of those things. All right. So when it comes to the next two sessions, our next two classes, we're going to do the first column next time. We're going to do the column on the right the time after that. So God is, and we've talked about this, God is triune okay let's 
let's play with that reality for a moment. So here's a, I'm gonna make this a little bit bigger. Maybe this marker will work better. Oh, that's much better. Look how nice that is. Wow. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And according to scripture, and I've got a bunch of verses in there that you can look up. We won't go over all of them. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God. Okay? They are God. But at the same time, there's the three circles. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Father is not the Son. So they are all God. That's consistent but they're also not one another. So, there's some, so they are, there is harmony, okay? There is unity, but there's also distinction. And there's also role, which we'll talk about role in a second, okay? So within the Trinity, there's harmony and there's unity, but there's also distinction and there is role. <clears throat> In the Trinity, we just need to recognize and say out loud, they had perfect community. Because there's three, they actually could exchange love with one another, okay? They could care for one another. They were not lacking. God did not create you or me or anything because he was lonely or needed something to play with. He wasn't up there twiddling his thumb saying, well, what am I gonna do now? Okay, that never happened. God created out of abundance. This is like a wellspring, like a fountain. He has so much love within the Trinity that he created out of abundance, not out of lack. If you think he created out of lack, it radically changes the way you interact with God. You view him as needy, almost codependent, like he needs your love, he needs your attention, he needs you to glorify him or else he's lacking. No, when you glorify him is for your good. You benefit, he receives glory, but you receive benefit, okay? Because we're the needy ones. He's the independent one, he's the infinite one who's created out of abundance. All right. Okay. Yes. Yes. So on page nine, one, two, third bullet point, it says this. The Trinity is inseparable in operation as all three work together in harmony with common purpose, making their work ultimately indivisible. Yet, there seems to be some emphasis and distinction. There are times when the Bible says the Spirit of Christ lives within you. There's times when the Bible says the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. There are times when it says the Father lives inside of you. So on some level, it seems like the Holy Spirit is the primary one who lives inside of you. But on some level, they're also somewhat inseparable in nature. So yes and, both and, like, yep. Well, so, lives in us. Second Timothy, yeah, good. So it's just, it's not that simple, okay? But they do have distinct roles, okay? So when, when God decided to create man, 
and all of creation, and then the fall happened, it wasn't then at that moment that the triune God had to respond to the fall and say, all right, which one of us should be the father? Which one of us has to die on a cross? Let's draw straws and see who gets the short straw. Like that conversation didn't happen. They were already Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before they ever created. So they didn't become Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in response to creation. They are who they've always been from all of eternity. Okay? So they've always had distinction. So even in the creation event, it looks like when you first read Genesis chapter 1 that the Father created, but you see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. Then you read Colossians chapter 1 and it says the Son created. Well, who created? Yes. On so yes. Yes. So on some level, they all had a role to play. Who saved you? Was it the Father? Or was it the Son? Or was it the Holy Spirit? Depending on which verse you pick, all of them played a role in saving you. All of them play a role in transforming you and sanctifying you. Philippians 1.6 says that it's Christ who's, who's basically the one who's completing your growth in him. It also says the Holy Spirit is the one who's convicting you, changing you, and growing you. We also see the Father is at work. So they are distinct, yet they seem to always be working together. And I'm not going to be able to explain that. Like, it's beyond us. All we can do is see what Scripture says and say, oh, oh, okay? So he's inseparable, but yet there's still roles. The Father was not on the cross. In the baptism of Christ in Luke chapter 3, the Son is in the water. The Father says, this is my Son of whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit does what? Descends like a dove upon him. All three are there, and they're distinct from one another. All right? And they're all playing a different role in that moment. But yet in the creation event, in your salvation, it might not be as easy to separate and make them distinguished from one another. Okay? I would love to take questions, but I don't have answers. Like, that, that's just what it is, okay? Okay, so I don't want to say any questions about the Trinity, because that's not going to get us anywhere. I'm the wrong guy for that. Um, but, but that's what the Bible points to. Uh, here on page 9, uh, the first bullet point at the top says each person of the Trinity, and this is this middle part where we're talking about each, per each person of the Trinity is God, each person of the Trinity is coexistent, co-eternal, co-equal, co-infinite with the others. None of them are lacking anything when it comes to deity. They are fully God every one of them, okay? Yet, they are still distinct from one another. The fourth bullet point says, this is a quote from the book you're reading, they have different roles, relations, and responsibilities. They're distinct in that we see, okay, it's almost like he has a parental role, and it talks about the fact that Jesus was begotten, or talks about the generation of Jesus, and it talks about that the Holy Spirit proceeded out of the Father and the Son in John 16. And we'll talk about both of those more when we study Jesus the Messiah and the Holy Spirit. But so there's distinction. There's equality and there's distinction. And as I, the more I talk, I'm not making things any more clear. So I realize that. Um, but I'm, ju I'm just telling you what, what we know. Now, at the very beginning 
of the page. It says, how do we balance the singular substance of God and the distinct persons of God? This is what the church argued about for the first 300 years. They had councils, and they had groups of all the bishops and leaders from all over the place arguing and talking and debating over this topic. So in one core class, we're not going to like nail this thing. Like It took hundreds of years of working through Scripture to come to the conclusion that we just read right there. So in the middle, there's a bunch of verses that describe the fact that Jesus is God. You can prove Jesus is God from the Old Testament or from the New Testament. It's everywhere. The Holy Spirit is God. He's mentioned at the same level as the Father and the Son multiple times throughout Scripture. So as far as we can understand, each person of the Trinity have likely had the same roles and relationships throughout all of eternity. All right. Let me just do one side point with this. So within marriage, if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians cha- I'm not asking you to go there, but if you go there, in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about the husband and the wife have different, having different roles. But the Bible is also very clear. Every woman has equal value to every man. But there's different roles that we play within marriage. If you read sections that talk about the church, elders and deacons and different roles, there's different roles that we play within the church. Within the Trinity, there are different roles that each person of the Trinity plays. But in playing a role where the Father, okay, so the Son basically submits himself to the Father, it doesn't make Jesus any less valuable. Because then the Father goes out of his way to bring glory to the Son in marriage, in the church, in different roles that we have in life, you never lose value depending on what role you're in. There is no loss of value. If you are devalued, you're being treated improperly by the person who's above you, beside you, or below you, okay, in whatever role you're in. So the fact that God's given us as people different roles, depending on gender and position and gifting, it makes sense. God lives in roles. God lives with distinction. So it makes sense that he gives us roles and distinction. It doesn't mean that anybody loses any value ever. Okay, that's just something something to think about. False understandings. So we're talking about the Trinity. Here's some ways that it's been viewed incorrectly. One, Unitarianism is that God is only one person. There is no Trinity. Some believe that there's just one, which makes baptism really confusing. When you watch Jesus get baptized, it doesn't make any sense, so they must just jump over that, that chapter. Tritheism means that you don't believe, you believe that there's three separate gods. It's like polytheism. So you don't view them all as one, you view them as just distinguished and separate, and you ignore the parts that say, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Okay? Modalism. Modalism is like there's one being who wears three different masks. Okay? There's three different masks. This is actually, this, this belief is in different places. I've watched TBN before, and I've heard preachers speak, and they spoke like a modalist. Um, oh, good. Okay. I wasn't going to say his name out loud. But yeah, I watched a sermon, I think. I said, I think he just said something modalistic. Okay? It's impossible. If the wrath of the Father landed on the Son on the cross, then they have to be distinct different beings. If you're a modalist, if you believe there's only one God who wears three masks, the cross doesn't make any sense. The cross loses its power. So modalism kills the gospel. All right? Arianism denies the deity of Christ. 
typically someone who leans that way, and I've heard people in the valley around here lean this direction. They'll say God was, that Jesus was created. He was the first created, but he was created, which is the opposite of what Micah 5.2 says, that Jesus came from eternity past, which is where the Father and the Holy Spirit came from. Uh, Numidomachianism. I had to practice saying that. I'm not going to say it again. Uh, is the denial of the Holy Spirit being God. Okay? That's out there too as well. So these doctrines of the Trinity, of this distinction, of this harmony, of the roles, of the unity, is unique to Christianity. There's not another religion out there that talks like this. If you can understand your God completely, he's probably not God. All right? So this is a little beyond us in every way, and on some level, that actually should make you feel better. The fact that you can't just put your hands around it and say, I got it, means you have to do this. I don't get it, but I'm going to worship you for who you are. That should feel right. So I'm going to leave you with this next section, but let me tell you what it is. So the next 14 or 15 pages is just a really big study of the names of God. Throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, God uses different names to describe himself and to reveal himself. Uh, J.I. Packer, in that little quote there, the third one, the short one, says, God's revealed name is, of course, more than a label. It is a revelation of who he is in relationship to us. So you've probably heard like um, Jehovah Jireh, God the provider, Yahweh Rofi, the God who heals. So there's different ways that he expresses himself and describes himself. The first expression, the first name he gives is Elohim, which is that first one that we studied there in, in Genesis. But when God starts relating to his people on a, on a personal level, he starts using the name Yahweh. Whenever he talks about a covenant that he makes with Abraham or Noah, he uses the name Yahweh. So that particular name has to do with his personal connection to people and his, the fact that he's a covenant-making God. That's awesome to think about. So this study is for you to do on your own. You don't have to have it done by next week. This isn't homework. But this is something you could use in a small group Bible study if you happen to be a group leader. Each one is probably 20 to 30 minutes of study. It could be a discussion-oriented discussion opportunity or a quiet time opportunity, whichever one you would prefer. Okay? So that's just, that's just for you. We won't have time to get to it. I had that study half-baked somewhere. I just put it back in the oven and put it in the book. All right? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for time to talk about you. I thank you for time to open up your word uh, and to get to know you better. I pray that we would all increase our value of pursuing you because you are all, you are worth every effort that we make. Um, God, give us the energy to pursue you. Give us a love for you. Give us a desire to read your word and to talk about you all the more. In Christ's name, amen.